Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have Dave Batman Brown back for an encore presentation. Uh, this is something that we looked at six months ago, five months ago, four months ago, <laughs> a while back, and it's a project that I think is very interesting. Uh, we're going to look at this article by Moncrief and her group and uh, try and make some, have some kind of conversation about that that hopefully leaves us in a, in a more helpful position after this uh, article that a lot of people read affected a lot of people than we were before. So that's the goal. Before we do that, let's go ahead and start with introductions. How about if we start with uh, Matt? You're here joining us today. You're a new medical student on the rotation. I am. Uh, my name is Matt. I am a current third year at Rocky Vista University rotating with Dr. Roundy. I am very excited to be here. And if you want, I don't know how much of any introductions, but I'm interested in family medicine. Uh, I uh, do enjoy psych. I think it is an interesting topic. It is something that's also there with family medicine. Uh, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good to have you here. And in fact, part of this discussion, I think, revolves around primary care physicians. So I think it has some interesting aspects. About 80% of treatment for depression in the United States, maybe around the world, is provided by primary care physicians. And I think one of the podcasts we had in the past was called The Paradox of Primary Care or something along those lines, where we talked about the fact that um, primary care physician outcomes in treatment of depression are quite equivalent to those of uh, psychiatrists. So interesting place to be in. Glad to have you here. Dave, you want to reintroduce yourself? Um, my name is Dave. I'm interested in, in surgery. And, uh... Liar. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, so, so Dave obviously uh, is making stuff up. You've introduced yourself so many times that I, I love the way this was going. I was worried what you might do and, and should have known better than to worry. It would be fun. Uh, psychiatry is the direction you're going. You've done a, a number of sub-I rotations. You've had uh, a plethora of experiences now. Yes. Anything that you would uh, say stands out to you for somebody that might be listening to this and is preparing for their sub-eyes? Um, I would say make sure that you get diversity of experience. Um, for me, I know one of those areas that I didn't feel particularly comfortable with was hospital medicine, so I made sure to get um, a lot of diversity in the types of hospitalist type rotations that I got. And I think that's an integral skill set in to any part of medicine. I even did a radiology rotation, um, and there's conceivable benefits even in that setting as well. So um, don't pigeonhole yourself into one area, and uh, make get, sure you get lots of experience. You're saying, yeah. I think I'm worried that might, something is. I'm, you might be, uh, maybe not. Looks like we're okay. I'm just going to move the mic a little closer to you and make sure that I understood that the take-home point was don't pigeonhole yourself, get a lot of experiences, do the internal medicine rotation as a sub-I no matter where you're going. Yeah, that would probably be a good idea. I think that's what <laughs> I, you might not have said, but what I heard. <laughs> um, how did you go about getting the sub-I's? Um, Vizlo and um, there's another one, Clinician Nexus. The other thing that they don't really tell you is you can go online and just search for opportunities. I was considering doing a rotation at NASA or SpaceX, but then financial matters kind of got in the way, and you start to realize how much everything's going to cost. Wait a minute. Like, you, well, might, you might be able to do a rotation <laughs> at SpaceX, a medical rotation? I was, I was considering doing a sub-I um, down there. 
Um, I don't know if the SpaceX one's still around. I think the NASA one might be around, but... And do they have a psychiatry sub Not specifically. <laughs> uh, fair <laughs> enough. I was going to say, that's pretty nuts. Yeah. So let's, um, let's go ahead and introduce the topic. Uh, I mentioned the Moncrief article, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that that wouldn't uh, stand out to anybody by name alone. Maybe it would. Yeah. Do you want to introduce the topic? And then as, when you kind of introduce the topic, what I'd like to do is have Matt, for the high-yield portion of this, talk about the principles that are tested around depression. Uh, or maybe depression and antidepressants, SSRIs. So go ahead and do the introduction, and then we'll go to Matt. So there's an article that started circulating um, last year titled The Serotonin Theory of Depression, A Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. And lead author was Joanna Moran-Kreef, who is a physician in the UK who happens to be a psychiatrist. Um, I can delve into her background a little bit more later, but essentially the premise of the article um, or the conclusion was saying that on the basis of serotonin, there's no biochemical um, basis for depression. Uh, and so based on the fact that meta-analyses and systematic reviews um, tend to be strong studies to designs, and this was an umbrella review which encompassed multiple systematic reviews and uh, meta-analyses, it gained traction from individuals who maybe aren't as well versed in research and uh, also individuals who maybe just jump right to an abstract and kind of divulge their information purely from the abstract. So um, without having the background, it gained significant traction across the, in, um, the internet particularly. Um, I think that they cited in a later follow-up article that it was one of the top 600 research articles searched online. And um, when I inputted serotonin and depression into Google, I think it was like the third result that I found. It even circulated along places like uh, certain um, psychology websites online, and also there was a Rolling Stone article published on it. So um, it definitely became something of an internet phenomenon, and I felt like that's why it was important to kind of address some of the claims that are made in this article and to. Um, sort of elucidate what exactly they measured and if that has any relevance. I think the other, the other thing that might be worth pointing out is that even though the claims, um, the abstract and the end of the article don't necessarily line up 100%. And I think the other thing that happened, a claim that they didn't make, was that maybe people should be off antidepressants, right? And I think that was kind of the runaway message of the internet come off antidepressants and I don't know that they made that claim either so I think we'll talk about um, the implications of the article even though the article may not have made some of those claims too. I can kind of speak to um, that statement in terms of their follow-up where they sort of hedged by saying if you're currently on something well there can be significant withdrawal and therefore you should talk to your doctor about you know, discontinuing one if you currently are on one. But in the article itself, um, there is no recommendations in terms of that type Treatment, of dialogue. Right, right. Uh, though, though lots of people ran that direction. So I think we'll talk about that a little bit as well, too. Uh, let's jump over to Matt now. Matt, for the high-yield portion of this, what kinds of principles are, as you've been studying your flashcards, you've been going through your world, you're looking at uh, first aid for the boards, what kind of principles are tested regarding SSRI medications? 
So when I look at SSRIs, I uh, think with any medication, like what are you treating? What is the bottom path, like pathology, or what are the symptoms or the clinical diagnosis that you come up with that led you to want to use this medication? And so with SSRIs, there's a lot of things that you can treat also with it, not just depression, but general anxiety disorder, uh, panic disorder, uh, you could have bulimia, other uh, eating disorders. And so... I think only bulimia of the eating disorders. Right. Yeah. And so um, uh, with that, it's a pretty... It's a pretty useful drug that you're able to treat so many things as kind of first-line therapy. But then also you want to know with that SSRI, when should you change medication? And when should you, uh, if you keep changing medication, when should you maybe change from an SSRI to another type of medication? And so uh, understanding those important uh, factors and like your clinical decision-making is basically what I feel that UWorld is often testing me on. And as I go through flashcards of, like, when should I stop taking the SSRIs, when should I put them on, and so forth. Excellent. So just to uh, encapsulate that, number one, they're used for a wide number of conditions. Be aware of the number of conditions that might be treated with the various SSRIs. Second, know when to choose to start them or not start them, and when to stop them. I think you also uh, mentioned one other thing, and that is, um, I think the thing that maybe you didn't mention is be aware of the risk of suicide associated with this or suicidal thoughts. Correct. Right? There's some of that. And then I think the other thing that sometimes shows up are the unusual outliers. I think uh, you might need to know right now that paroxetine and citalopram seem to be associated with some cleft uh, palate disorders. I think you need to know that uh, fluoxetine has this really uh, unusually long half-life, and so there might be overlap issues with monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Right, You can't overlap those two without the risk of serotonin syndrome, and uh, be aware of serotonin syndrome. And I think that if you're thinking about those things, you'll have a lot of the meat of SSRIs, and, and that's a portion of the antidepressant talk. Right. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about this article. Um, I'll just start by saying that uh, David and I uh, both went through this article, I think, pretty closely and then tackled it maybe from exactly opposite points of view. (laughs) So I'm going to be interested to see how this works out. I'm going to try and follow your outline and then uh, jump in when I think I have something relevant to say. How does that sound? So let's start off with, um, you have here, I think the starting point is the introduction to monoamines. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Um, so because their paper focused solely on serotonin, I chose to kind of delve into some of the biochemistry of serotonin. And I would say that serotonin is not the only thing that we utilize in the treatment of depression, and that will become clear as we go along here. But... For the time being, I'm just going to dive super heavily on on serotonin. So initially, serotonin gets synthesized in your GI tract with the precursor amino acid L-tryptophan, and something like 90% of serotonin in the body is actually in the GI tract where that's synthesized. The other 8% is in platelets, and it's sequestered inside of platelets that 
aids during um, stressful events and vasoconstriction, also platelet aggregation. And then the other 1 to 2% is in the CNS, where it gets produced in the raphae nuclei inside of the brain stem. Um, so significant portion in GI tract means that a lot of it serves to regulate GI activity and um, the myenteric neurons. I think most people have probably heard that the enteric nervous system is like the second brain of the body because it's this auto-regulated network of complexity and um, of course, serotonin is going to be heavily involved in that, and as you'll see with side effects in the case of SSRIs, then that's one that we can expect is some type of change in GI motility. In terms of the receptors that we've identified in the human body, there's 15 um, currently with three major families. And I kind of outlined the different classifications. Um, I don't have to delve into that too much because it's kind of like, you know, listening to paint dry. Get your alphabet <laughs> right there. Yeah, I think um, that's probably true. And it also, uh, it becomes difficult to follow in a yeah. podcast, I think. Yeah, it, it's tedious and, and difficult even if you're sitting there and studying it. Um, but I did want to mention a couple of the receptors that maybe will become clear as we go along. 5-HT1A uh, is an autoreceptor, and that means it's regulating things Presynaptically, um, it works specifically at the dendritosomato portion of an axon. So it is um, essentially inhibiting reuptake of serotonin there, which will later affect serotonin's release downstream in the synaptic cleft. Um, if somebody is familiar with the way that alpha-2 receptors work in the CNS, it kind of has a similar mechanism. Um, and so what we're doing is we're essentially preventing the reuptake of serotonin there so that we can later sensitize that neuron. And one of the hypotheses is that if someone's depressed, you would expect to have upregulation of those serotonin receptors. So with time, we're going to uh, lead essentially to sensitization with something like an SSRI. In theory. I think this theory. is very theoretical, right? Um, well, and then if we look at some of the studies that they have, they were mostly focused on, okay... Metabolites of serotonin, presence of serotonin. And as uh, opposed presence to the, of receptors as, as well. And then does that have the effect with depression? Right. Um, so they, they picked out one area to say, this shows that serotonin doesn't matter. But it seems like they left a whole lot of other areas. And I think uh -huh. what you're doing right now, just to make sure it's clear to the listener and maybe so that I understand it, yeah. you're saying... Great, serotonin metabolites don't matter. Absolute serotonin in the cleft may not matter. Uh, serotonin, uh, the way we measure it in the platelets may not matter. You're saying all of those things have been dead ends for us. Mm -hmm. But we know, I mean, the thing that's weird is there seems to be something about medications that are serotonergic in nature, have some sort of serotonin activity. They affect depression. We, yeah. we know that pretty clearly. And so the question is where? And I think that's where some of the data we're still looking at, and you're now talking about not the absolute amount of serotonin, either high or low, but the way that serotonin actually affects the neuron. Yeah, right? and if we look at the way that the authors approach this problem, they look at it as a form of sort of a deficit that is being repleted, um, and it's sort of creating a, a problem that's nonlinear and then um, trying to put it in a two-dimensional plane and saying, well, if there's a deficit, 
then by fixing the deficit, the, the problem should be ameliorated. But I think that was the uh, Tylenol deficit for headaches, right? That's the analogy. Uh, yeah, so one of the, the critiques um, of their paper, and we can kind of delve into the exact quote later, but somebody alluded to the fact, well, pain isn't a deficiency of Tylenol in the body. Um, and though they're treating this as though it's a deficiency, it's just a pure serotonin yeah. deficiency. Yeah, so, so again, I just wanted to point out that what you're saying, just we're stepping away from the idea that this is a uh, amount of serotonin that is viewed to be the issue, but other aspects of serotonin and the way it's used in the brain. And, and I think it's also fair to say that for well over a decade, n nobody has really felt like serotonin explains depression, the, yeah. an absence of serotonin. Yeah, and, and I have the, the history kind of, the, of that issue outlined as well. I can progress how that maybe came about and also why it's not believed anymore. Um, I'll shut up then and we'll wait till we get there. How does that sound? So um, I think you were at 1A, 5-HT1A uh, receptors at that point. Yeah, so I, I kind of mentioned some of the effects um, that we would expect is because of the so much sequestration of serotonin in the GI tract, you'd expect there to be motility effects, and indeed, um, serotonin acts in other places. So if 5-HT3 receptors are found in the chemotactic trigger zone, which is the area of the brainstem that modulates um, emesis. So when you feel nauseous, then it's communicating with the vagus. And, um, we have agents that block that receptor, Zofran, which you may be familiar with, to kind of prevent that emesis. Also called, called ondansetron. Yeah, it's, especially for these guys, it's probably more <laughs> ondansetron than Zofran at this point. Um, and then it's thought that certain um, receptors like the 5-HT2C um, may actually cause anxiety in some cases like paroxetine, sertraline, and venlafaxine, which stimulate that receptor. And so it's thought that for a while at least there can be initial onset or worsening of symptoms, which you know, are things that maybe you'd want to discuss with your patients as you're prescribing them. Um, and there's other important things to note that a lot of the medications that were kind of lumped in as being SSRIs aren't always in fact SSRIs, but work by different mechanisms. Um, I mentioned that for instance, fluoxetine blocks 5-HT2C and the mechanism for that is different in that it regulates the release of dopamine and norepinephrine, which are not necessarily monoamines, but things that are important. Uh, norepinephrine is going to be acting both centrally in, um, as a neurotransmitter, and then it's also acting peripherally as a neurohormone in something like a fight or flight response. Um, and so one of the things that's of note is certain individuals have a high number of 5-HT2C receptors in the prefrontal cortex, so by stimulating that, um, that could be a consideration of, you know, perhaps worsening for certain patients. Um, in other words, not every SSRI works for everybody the same way. Yeah, in, and there might the be mechanism. some biological reasons for that, even and, though we've lumped uh, them all in as an SSRI. Yeah, and, and kind of give it that blanket. Um, it's not just the side effects necessarily that we have to worry about where we say, don't use this SSRI during pregnancy, and it's as simple as that. It might be a little bit more nuanced. Um, we're not there yet. No. But maybe we're getting closer. Okay. Um, I, you have, one of the, I think, 
one of the criticisms of, let me, let me say this a different way, the Moncrief article, in a sense, seemed to make the case, two cases it made, I'll get to one later um, in more detail, but suffice to say that talking about a biological mechanism for depression might make it harder for people to get well is one of the arguments they make, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and then the second argument that seems to come out of this is, well, antidepressants don't work, even though that's not what their analysis was, right? That seemed to be the, the logical extension of what they're saying. There are many other types of antidepressants besides uh, SSRIs. And I think you have a couple of these here as a way to highlight that really we've abandoned the serotonin hypothesis. Um, Mirtazapine, I think, is yeah, one of those. Mirtazapine was one that I highlighted in part because it also um, helps to reinforce that mechanism for auto-regulation. So if you weren't bored enough the first time, here's past two. <laughs> so it, it blocks 5-HT2A and C um, and then binds to 5-HT2 in addition to alpha-2 receptors. So by blocking the alpha-2 receptors, this leads to a downstream increase in norepinephrine, which is something that we've been able to identify as having a therapeutic role in depression. Um, I think, interestingly enough, in a lot of research studies, uh, norepinephrine release into the CNS is used to stimulate anxiety or panic attacks. Um, so it's, it's kind of like finding that right balance of where norepinephrine am ameliorates the symptoms of depression, but at high enough doses, you can think of it as being anxiolytic. Anxiogenic, yeah. yeah. I want to jump in with a story. So, so to break away from the numbers, so to speak, I want to, I want to tell a story because I, my initial approach wasn't, hey, here's here's serotonin, here's how it works. My initial approach was serotonin hypothesis. Let's look at that. So it actually didn't start out as the serotonin hypothesis, right? Yeah. It, and I think the the phrase that has had the most abuse is chemical imbalance. I know we'll get to that more later. But the original story was, uh, was the monoaminergic hypothesis of depression. And this was promulgated by at least Schildkraut and maybe one other person back in 65, right? There's articles you can go find these. And, and they make this interesting case. They say um, monoamines seem to be involved in depression. And their ultimate statement was, some, if not all, depressions are associated with an absolute or relative deficiency of catecholamines, and this hypothesis is not directly testable yet. Now, I don't think it really panned out exactly that way, yeah. but this original hypothesis is interesting because it, it actually, in the article, he focused more on norepinephrine than he did serotonin. So he talked about reserpine uh, depletion and inactivation of, of monoamines as being clearly associated with sedation and depression, right? You can clearly see that in some of the models. Even though tryptophan depletion doesn't cause that, you can get it with reserpine, right? It's yeah. it's sort of like this, I think it was sort of a straw man that they put up, which is, well, res well tryptophan depletion doesn't cause depression, so serotonin isn't involved. Well, reserpine does have monoamine depletion, and, and there seems to be this clear association. And the other thing they noticed was that you can give somebody a stimulant, an amphetamine, which is a monoamine, and you get this immediate excitation, agitation, and maybe even anxiety, right? You can see ups and downs associated with pushing the monoamine levers uh, globally 
even though I think we, we ended up at a place that's somewhat different. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting that even when uh, Schildkraut's talking about this, he, we didn't have, we hadn't elucidated the activity of the uh, serotonin reuptake um, protein, right? We didn't have any picture of that. And, and it was only much later that Eli Lilly started saying, well, um, w we figured out depression seems to be associated with serotonin, so we're going to try and mess around with SSRIs, and we found Prozac, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting because in some way, uh, Moncrief and, the, and this group say, you, you can't trust the medications because they come out of a flawed theory. Well, what's interesting is if you go back even further, we've had podcasts on, on both of these two medications. One is uh, the Atypical Depression podcast where we talked about how Ipraniazid was an... Uh, anti-tuberculosis medication that was found to have monoamine um, characteristics. And this is an amazing breakthrough, right? Before that, we were giving people opiates and stimulants and, and things that none of us would want to give now. And even though we yearn for medications better than what we have, I mean, the SSRIs and, and the uh, MAOIs and the TCAs were all a step ahead of this. The other thing that was uh, perhaps serendipitous was imipramine. And again, you can hear more about these stories in other podcasts. Imipramine was um, being looked at as an antipsychotic medication and found to not help in, in treatment of psychosis, but did seem to make people hypomanic or at least uh, seem to maybe lift, lift people out of depression. So yeah. interestingly enough, we didn't come to, I mean, the antidepressants weren't because of the serotonin model. The serotonin model was because of antidepressants that seem to work, yeah. right? And, and, and it's backwards, right, in part of this. We could probably say that the serotonin hypothesis, you know, quote-unquote, emerged from what was initially considered to be the catecholamine hypothesis, which is kind of what you're alluding to. Yes. Um, and that the deficiency, I guess, was postulated to lead to depression, whereas an overabundance would lead to hypomania or mania. Right. Um, so, so there were these theories that... And, and, there was some, you know, they were they, with the tools they had, this was a reasonable hypothesis at the time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the catecholamine, well, the monoamine hypothesis. Even today, I think you could argue MAOIs still are some of the most effective antidepressants that exist. It's just we're not comfortable with the side effects that they pose. And we and, don't, oh, go ahead, sorry. And so, therefore, they're not oftenly prescribed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, more potential for interactions, but if we were to compare them, against maybe SSRIs in uh, isolation, we would probably choose MAOIs just if we we're looking only purely at you know, treatment effect sizes. Absolutely. Um, we have a little bit more here about um, antidepressants. I, I think if you have a summary of these two pages that mm -hmm. you want to throw out there that maybe doesn't... Uh, <laughs> involve pictures. <laughs> involve pictures and doesn't involve a lot of 5-HT this, 5-HT uh -huh. that. What would be your summary of those two pages? Um, do you want me to continue going on, on how the serotonin hypothesis evolved? Yes. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I, I was worried that these two might get in the way of that because yeah. I, I see monoamine oxidase inhibitors and TCAs as kind of your next kind of area, and I'm, I'm interested and to see where you, you go to you that. You touched on it with the release of Prozac. I think it's important just to mention at the time that TCAs and MAOIs were kind of what was available, and so somewhere in the 70s, I think it was initially termed the permissive hypothesis when uh, serotonin arrived on the scene, 
um, and permitting by that uh, verbiage meaning allowing synapses to be triggered by a drop in norepinephrine um, so it was almost seen as like they hadn't hallucinated the the mechanism for that um, but at that time it was still something where we thought norepinephrine was the primary driver and then as time went on as we saw um, a similar depression events occur in the 80s in conditions like Parkinson's disease where you have depletion of dopaminergic sensor uh, centers and then also in schizophrenia where you seem to have increased um, depressive symptoms in patients it was thought dopamine also plays a role in this and so as we kind of create a more unifying theory it seems like there's a lot more at work than just saying it's just norepinephrine and or just serotonin yeah or so just dopamine for for this article to focus solely on serotonin is uh, quizzical I would say would be the verbiage I'd use and so to me um, as somebody who identifies themselves as a psychiatrist it makes me wonder if they either have ignorance or an agenda um, so that's something we can kind of explore I, I would like to okay. <laughs> um, what more do you want to talk about um, before we talk about the neurotrophic uh, neurotrophic hypothesis of depression yeah um, I just realized I didn't talk about mirtazapine's uh, mechanism of action. But, I thought you did. Uh, I no, think you talked about the 5-H, well, you, you talked about the receptor activity, but what, what yeah. is the proposed uh, mechanism of action? So um, it blocks the alpha-2 leading to increased norepinephrine, but also acting on alpha-2, stimulates 5-HT2 secretion from neurons in that dorsal, dorsal raphe nucleus. So this is just kind of highlighting some of the points that we've made where something is causing a different mechanism of action and we do have data on mirtazapine as an efficacious agent and one um, combination therapy that's used in treatment resistant depression involves mirtazapine and an SNRI um, yeah. colloquially California rocket fuel I think that's what I've heard it's, it called you might even add Wellbutrin to that because of the yeah. multiple mechanisms of action. I would also point out that uh, according to the TMAP data, the last I looked at this, and I think this data is still evolving, uh, the TMAP data, which is the sequential treatment of depression, maybe that's the STAR-E data, so, uh, sequential treatment of depression, uh, seems to suggest that even though uh, mirtazapine is rarely used because of the really terrible and high risk of having weight gain, it seems to be our most potent, kind of easy to reach for antidepressant compared to the uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors which are potent and a little harder to reach for because of those side effects, yeah. those concerns. So so a very, very effective medication. Uh, what else before we move to neurotrophic hypothesis of depression? Um, I think we're, we're fine kind of diving into that. Right. So I would say in terms of where we are at uh, a crossroads currently is that as far as we can identify, there are global changes in patients who suffer with depression. We are able to see those changes on MRI, um, and this includes animal studies and human studies. And um, I've found studies as well that indicate that the 
degree to which the condition has progressed seems to correlate with um, the severity of what we expect. So we see changes in brain matter sizes, um, in differences in the size of the ventricles, um, changes on fMRI studies, which we use as a, a proxy to determine how metabolically active the brain is. And um, one of those neurotrophic factors that a lot of people tend to be aware of is called BDNF, which initially was thought to uh, be involved in synaptogenesis, but it also seems to have functions in neurons that are established and maybe are undergoing synaptic pruning or plasticity-like events. So there's some research that showed that in um, individuals who are severely impaired, they've done autopsies on their levels of BDNF that found they were severely depressed relative to controls. And also in patients with depression, it seems like there is decreased BDNF that possibly could be reversed as, uh, as they are being treated. So while it's not necessarily an open and shut case to say that BNA, this is BDNF at work, it may be something that we look at and say synaptic remodeling is occurring um, and we have a, a marker that indicates that using this as one proxy for that measure. Sort of like uh, we have to be careful that we don't have the BDNF theory of depression like the serotonin theory of depression. It's, it's something we know more about. It's incomplete. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've talked about neurotransmitters, monoamine neurotransmitters. BDNF, I think, would be considered a hormone? Um, or a peptide hormone? I think it's a peptide. It's able to cross the blood-brain barrier in either direction, which is very interesting. But I, I would have to look up more into its molecular structure to neural peptide. Figure out exactly where to place it. Okay. Um, definitely not a monoamine, and no. really a different system. I don't know that we think about this neural peptide as being released um, by a presynaptic neuron to affect the postsynaptic neuron. Right? This isn't a neurotransmitter. Yeah. Um, and now I think you're going to tell me a little bit about. So we've talked about two models that that are involved in depression, the biological aspects of depression. And then the third uh, model you have here is circuitry. There's some circuitry involved in depression. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, through some of those studies, we've been able to identify that uh, there's altered volumes in some of those networks, um, some including the anterior cingulate, the hippocampus, um, the striatum, and orbital frontal cortex as well. So when the authors postulate things like there is no biological basis for depression, and I believe from some of the things I've heard the lead author say is that she doesn't believe that psychiatric conditions have any type of... Um, biological underpinnings. Yeah, and which is kind of confusing to me because she said, like, if they did, then they'd be classified as neurological disorders. Um, I think it's appropriate to just leave that silence there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, other things we've been able to witness as well is increased um, volume bilaterally in the amygdala and decreased also global volume in the right thalamus. The part of the reason why I uh, illustrate that is if we look at the limbic circuitry, 
So the limbic system is thought to be sort of a primordial type cortex, which relays information to us about um, emotional valence of the environment and, and how we interpret that. So it seems to be sort of a less uh, sophisticated part of the brain, but um, I think a lot of that circuitry informs cortex about, you know, what do I do with this information? So in, in the Run. 19... Run. Fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. 1937, you were about uh, to say, I think. I, I interrupted. I apologize. There's a, a famous circuit called uh, the Pape circuit, or Pepez. Um, he's, a, I believe, an Italian neuroanatomist that identified the hippocampus, fornix, anterior thalamic nucleus, the mammillary bodies, the cingulate, and the perihippocampal gyrus play into this network that essentially informs us of episodic memory um, and then also our emotional interpretation of those episodes. So without kind of illustrating exactly how that circuit forms. Um, Suffice to say there's some data behind it? Is that where you're going? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no. There um, seems to be at least some suggestion that there is um, changes in those, and a lot of the structures that I just mentioned are involved in the PAPE circuit. So particularly the hippocampus, a lot of people are aware that um, that's involved in memory. There seems to be um, atrophy of the hippocampus and major depression. Um, but then although the amygdala wires back to the, um, the hippocampus through the hypothalamus. Um, and not to get too much into that circuitry again, because I know I'll see Dr. Rowdy's eyes glaze over as I do. <laughs> yes, you will. I struggle with no. So, so you apparently, I mean, I look at these words, I go, I can read them. I think they're hard to remember. Yeah. Maybe you're better, you, you seem to have a better grasp of that. Most of my medical students uh, that come through Rocky Vista seem to be able to know brain circuitry better than I do, but my eyes do glaze over a little bit. And I think it's not as compelling podcast information. Yeah. So, so I try to kind of press you through the circuitry part. Yeah. So I think what's important about that is just to note that um, a lot of these mechanisms are kind of informing um, how we're interpreting things and maybe um, may ameliorate in the presence of therapeutic approaches where we're talking about episodes where somebody had something traumatic occurred. Um, and there's a saying in, in neurology and psychiatry, the neurons that fire together, wire together. So... That was a Nobel Prize saying, no yeah. less. Yeah, <laughs> Eric Kandel. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I think it's a, a reasonable um, assertion to make to say that if you have th your amygdala is hypertrophic, chances are you're getting maybe... Um, more anxiety than an individual who's got more appropriately uh, sized amygdala. Hippocampus being atrophic is probably not helpful for memory, and that seems to be in concordance with a lot of the symptoms that we witness in major depressive disorder, where people are struggling cognitively. Um, they maybe are more fearful of things that were not fearful stimuli. And so all of this, at the very least, if you were not to regard it as being uh, a wholly conclusive case, you could say there's definitely something bio 
There's chemical, a biological yeah. process happening on yes. some level. Whether it's caused by some sort of event or whether it arises de novo, there's something biological that is manifest in the brain during the depression. And uh, so that led me then to pursue changes that occur as a, a result then through therapeutic approaches. ECT is something that's kind of considered to be the gold standard when it comes to the treatment of very... Uh, Psychotic depression. Uh, when you need to minimize the side effects to a fetus, you can use ECT, right? Yeah. Um, treatment that's not responding to anybody else. Acute, acute suicidality. I think those are the things that show up on the shelf exam. Yeah. Um, and it's also important to know, I'm sure that, um, well, I should say some of the medical students that might be listening to this have maybe encountered somebody who was so depressed that they were in sort of a catatonic state where they are unable to feed themselves. They're so much psychomotorly depressed that they're unable to get out of bed and care for themselves. In cases where depression has reached a point of someone is uh, near danger to themselves, ECT is definitely a consideration and it's something that probably has the best data of any therapeutic modality that we currently have for treating that. So this was a study that was titled Structural Plasticity of the Hippocampus and Amygdala Induced by uh, ECT and Major Depression. And essentially they had a group of patients, it was 32, who at baseline had major depressive disorder. They gave him two ECT treatments and 48 hours later did an assessment to kind of see if there's changes in regions of the brain. Um, two that they particularly focused on were the hippocampus and the amygdala. And so at that point we were starting to see changes um, relative to controls. At so, 48 hours? Yeah, 48 and, hours. And how did they look at this? Was it fMRI? Um, let me see here. So in the methods they said that Cross-sectional comparisons has got to be fMRI, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I don't think they would see um, structural changes that quickly. That would be pretty quick, I think. Yeah. Okay. So at, let's see, 48 hours following the two EC treatments, they are starting to see structural changes. And then they followed that with four weeks uh, with a regimen of three ECT treatments per week. And from that, they're able to see substantial differences in increased amygdala volumes. Uh, so the amygdala changed relative to controls. Let's see here. Suffice to say, there is a biological marker suggesting that ECT might be changing the brain physically yeah. and reversing some of the things that are associated with depressed mood particularly this uh, PAPE pathway? Is that where it's most effective, or was it just the two areas? Um, I only point that out as it's just an area for probably further research to kind of occur in, mm -hmm. because there seems to be at least um, those nuclei are involved. So it's possible that it's not solely the PAPE circuit that's being affected, but it's definitely a key player. And the, our current understanding of why ECT works is it's causing a change in the volume of these networks, allowing them to exhibit plasticity and causing essentially a disruption. 
Because if we induce a seizure, we're essentially causing a global release of neurotransmitters into their synaptic clefts. And um, in determining whether ECT is an effective modality, that's one of the things that we're monitoring is, did the patient have a sufficient duration seizure um, based off where we had the leads? And if they didn't, then it's one of those things where we need to kind of modify some of the parameters of ECT so that they have a sufficient duration seizure um, that's going to be of therapeutic benefit. Is there anything you, that you would append to that statement? No, I, I think, again, I think the, the, the discussion we're having, I'm, I'm going to kind of pull it together before we start talking about this review because I think that's the next step. Yeah. Just pulling the umbrella together, there seems to be a lot of evidence that a biological approach to depression seems to be helpful. The causality of depression is really quite interesting, and I think we'll get into that in a little bit, right? Uh, the issue about some sort of uh, biological predisposition versus, gosh, just bad things happen in, the, in your life and so you become depressed, right? And, and I think that's kind of where this goes. And I, I think what the case you're making is that if we had the tools, these would essentially be biomarkers when you're talking about these circuitry. Uh, they would be biomarkers for recovery, right? They are... Uh, volumetrically impaired, so to speak, in the depressed state, they respond to the treatment and they start to rebuild and, and reform with the treatment. So, uh, which I think is the definition of a biomarker. Yeah. Right? So, so I think there's, there's a lot of biology. I, I think we're making the case there's a lot of biology associated with the antidepressants. There's a lot of biology associated with depression itself. And there seems to be some biology, some neurobiology associated with that recovery. And, and I, I, I'm not sure that answers maybe 100% the case that Moncrief is making, which I think is um, th these are just bad events that tip people over, and so if you can better respond to bad events, it's not really a biological treatment that's necessary. And, and I, think that's a, I think that's one way that you could think about the article they're, they're, they're making. And I think what you're providing is somewhat of a... a but there's biology here, right? There's a, yeah. there's a science behind this. Let, let's jump into the article itself because okay. because I think that's the next step here. If I could just highlight oh, yeah. one thing before that. Um, so they were measuring that brain volume in uh, millimeters cubed, uh, which I think, try to figure out how much that equates to in volume. But so it was 3,600 millimeters cubed on that first week. And the mean changed to something like uh, 4,000 and, and something. So, it, but this is like a significant difference that we're talking about. It's not just It's an easily, easily measurable change. Then, that's sure. prone to measurement error or something of, of that nature. So there was definitely observable differences. So that I think that's important to note. Um, would you like me to talk about the authors first? Or the yeah, let's, of let's start off with the article. You mentioned that it was the third, I think you mentioned this before, it was the third item that came up when you talked about serotonin, or when you searched on Google serotonin and, uh, and um, depression. So tell me a little bit about uh, Dr. Moncrief. So she was the lead author on this paper. Um, she also happens to be the co-chair of a network called the Critical Psychiatry Network, which is kind of focused on not utilizing medication interventions for psychiatric illnesses. She's also the author of uh, a few books. One was like The Bitterest Pills, The Myth of the Chemical Cure, and A Straight-Talking Introduction to Psychiatric Drugs. Um, 
She happens to be the co-chair of the Critical Psychiatry Network with one of the residents who is also on the paper by the name of Tom Stockman. Um, it says that he's a specialist registrar for general psychiatry, which I interpret to be the UK equivalent of being a, um, a resident in psychiatry in, in the US. Um, so he also happens to be a co-chair on that network. It's important to note the Critical Psychiatry Network was founded by a group of UK psych psychiatrists who got together in 1999 discussing changes um, proposed by the Mental Health Act uh, at that time. And it currently consists of 350 psychiatrists. Two-thirds are based in the UK and the rest are kind of spread across the world. So... Can, can I ask a question? They seem to be of the opinion that treating depression with a medication is inherently wrong. A any idea why that's the case? Well, um, as I dove into it, and I wouldn't say this is like their specific argument, but it seems to be um, something to the effect of this is going to change someone's brain chemistry which kind of, in some way, contradicts some of the points that they made in the review of their criticism. Uh, one of the issues I take is they contradict themselves a couple of different times, and so it's hard to kind of pin down that argument, but it seems to be some of the medical legal issues in, certainly in inpatient psychiatry, there is uh, an argument to be made of when is it appropriate to have somebody stay in an inpatient unit against their will, and I think that's becomes something of a philosophical and uh, medical ethical discussion and for whatever reason they they view medication as something to be uh, something the patient's not able to make an informed decision about so it, it, I, there was a part of me that wondered and I don't know how accurate this is the National Health Service um, is a it's a countrywide health insurance in England and I'm under the impression that that organization has been increasingly squeezed financially that the services that were provided initially through the NHS maybe aren't provided quite the same way at this point there was a part of me that that wondered if some of this came out of the desire to protect psychotherapy for patients and that the cost of that was uh, enough that it, psychotherapy was being squeezed out by, by NHS. It, did you come across anything along those lines that, that suggested that? No, I think like that sounds reasonable. I know, for instance, if we're going to correlate it with uh, the way psychiatry is practiced in America, from a financial perspective, psychotherapy tends to not be well compensated for for physicians on the basis that uh, psychologists can provide similar service or LMFT uh, social worker yeah. therapy. I so think. why pay a, a psychiatrist for that service? And that seems to have shifted some of the practice away from psychotherapy for some individuals, although there seems to be plenty of psychiatrists that still utilize it and, uh, and value the efficacy. There, there is a, I, I think amongst this group, there's a, a clear tendency to think that uh, some of the articles that they referenced, it's clearly if somebody has used a medication, that's just wrong. If you treat mental health with a medication, that's just that's just wrong. That seems to be some of the takeaway from some of the articles that uh, Moncrief cited. 
and it seems like I, I, I think that that was kind of the thinking they had. And and I, again, I I don't think anybody that prescribes uh, medications that psychiatrists prescribe are happy with the choices we have. I think generally we're happier with the choices we have than we are with the illness that we have without the choices or the level of the illness. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat mystified by that. I, I think I should probably also throw in, you, you've been to a number of places now, uh, rotations. I, I, don't, I think I'm a very biological psychiatrist, but I think I would also say that maybe you saw me do more things with psychotherapy than the majority of your biological psychiatrists that I try to be very invested in both. Does that sound reasonably accurate to you? Um, I would say I'm, I'm trying to consider all the various different settings I've been in. Um, and I think here in particular, there's a unique set of circumstances where you tend to have the most severe um, pathologies that patients yeah. can exhibit. Um, I, I feel like we're desperately trying to use every single tool we have that includes things like CBTP, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis, CBSST, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, CBSS, cognitive behavioral social skill therapy, right? We're, we're using very validated therapies and we're both feet in, so to speak. It, it's not, I, I just want to point out that I'm not somebody that says you shouldn't use psychotherapies yeah. and I'm very invested in those and I still have kind of some issues with the way they, they go about, maybe the way they talk about something that on some level we all agree with, right? If, if we can treat something in a way that a patient chooses with good effect, we, we should probably help provide those options to the patient. Yeah. And, and I think that might be a reasonable takeaway from this, I, but it seems like they're trying to say we shouldn't ever provide the option of medication to a patient. Well, when you title your uh, books, The Myth of the Chemical Cure, The Bitterest of Pills, it doesn't really seem like you are a proponent for a use case uh, for medications and those treatments. Um, I, I'm trying to be very open-minded to the ideas they're bringing. And I think I'm, I think I'm, I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is we're probably going to be very critical of what follows. And I wanted to set the stage for, I'm willing to listen to a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. I think if anything, the, the critiques that I've seen yielded themselves to being more open-minded than their responses to those critiques. I think we'll get into those in just a moment, right? Yeah. So let's start off with um, the introduction. And I'm going to just jump into this very briefly. They made the case. We're going to pause for just a second. We left off. Uh, the case they made, and I, I thought this was really interesting. They said 5-HIAA has no association with depression. Plasma... Constant, uh, plasma serotonin has no association with depression. 5-HT1 insert binding doesn't seem to correlate with increased synaptic serotonin. Tryptophan depletion has no effect on uh, this as well. Maybe unless you look at people with a family history. Maybe then. Yeah. Um, and the CERT gene is not associated with depression. Yeah, and so they assess that through checking the promoter region of the Gene. I think they cited some reasonable data. I didn't go and look at all the articles that, yeah. that made this case. But I don't think, I, I think they're saying because these are the dead ends in researching the relationship between serotonin and depression, clearly serotonin has no effect on depression, which I think is, 
it's, it's a, I, I don't think that's accurate based on the things we talked about before, right? Yeah. There, if the medications, and, and, well, the reason why we still keep looking at this is because medications that affect serotonin clearly seem to make some difference. Maybe not all medications that affect serotonin, but we have these medications long before there was a serotonin hypothesis that clearly people saw this change, right? And well-controlled studies that have persisted seem to continue to show this. There's some uh, discussion about how effective the medications might be, but I think pretty consistently the NNT is about five, right? You treat five people with an antidepressant. One of those is probably getting well because of the antidepressant that is an SSRI. Those numbers seem to be pretty consistent. And, and so they say, well, if then, and I'm, I'm going to try and say they, they, then, they then go through this long discussion about those points. Let's suppose that we see that they're accurate about those five statements. I, I think that's six. Six. Thank you. If we say that... Uh, Right, because the gene and stress, right? This, the gene by stress interaction, I didn't, yeah. I didn't count. If we seed that they're accurate in those six statements, I think that's reasonable. Because I don't know that anybody is out there actively saying these six things explain the serotonin hypothesis. I think the, the thing that's probably worth going after is the part that follows that. So I'm, I'm going to... Um, Unless you want to talk about, actually, I'm just going to jump a little bit further ahead. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to have you now fill in just a little bit where I'm headed, okay? So they said, and this is the part that I think starts to bother me a lot. Leading researchers endorse the theory of chemical imbalance. Yeah. I went and read the articles that they cited. I don't think, I, I think mostly what they were saying is, we're trying to figure this stuff out, and here's what we know so far and what we don't know. I don't think they said there is a chemical imbalance, at least not, not serious researchers. So Cohen, for example, which was the ninth article um, that, was in the, in, that they listed saying, proponents argue for the chemical imbalance. I mean, straight out of Cohen and Browning, they said noted, they, they noted the problems um, very clearly with the with the serotonin hypothesis, right? They say right up front, there's a lot of problems with this, and we're trying to understand why there's this association between SSRIs and recovery from depression, even though we we can't tell you why that association is there. They're, they say it in the paper, and and I think it is not. I, I think the way that Moncrief has cited this paper doesn't tell the full, full story. I, I think it's inaccurately cited. Yeah. The, the next article is Harmer and Cohen, and one of the quotes out of it is, a purely neurotransmitter based explanation is challenged by, and it goes off, right? <laughs> I, and yet, this is Moncrief saying, hey, people are for this, right? So I have a lot of heartburn about that. And in fact, you have a Cohen art, uh, response um, in the paperwork you have where Cohen responded to this article. Yeah. Do, you, do you want to read that? I thought uh, this was very telling. Let me. While you're see looking for that. Um, yeah, so he said um, this is a quote from Phil Cohen, University of Oxford. And he's cited in a number of patients, in another number of papers saying 
they're sticking up for the the uh, chemical imbalance theory. And yeah. Cohen, said, I don't I, think does, <laughs> but he also says... He said, I studied the role of serotonin in people with depression for three decades, and I'm broadly in agreement with the author's conclusions about our current efforts. Though, I lack their adamantine certainty. No mental health professional would certainly endorse the view that a complex, heterogeneous condition like depression stems from a deficiency in a single neurotransmitter. Though in my opinion, and from my own work, the evidence that tryptophan depletion results in depressive symptoms in some remitted, remitted depressed, tryptophan depletion um, wait, in some remitted depressed patients is quite good. A similar comment applies to PET studies, which show lowered serotonin transport binding, particularly in the midbrain. This is consistent with the diminished activity of serotonin neurons. In fact, it would be surprising if such a widely distributed brain neuromodulatory system was completely uninvolved in the complex experiences that make up clinical depression. Um, <laughs> Isn't that a great statement? I think he is so well spoken on that. It, it, it feels like they, they found the areas where the research had failed to show the association and talked about those. I think, I'm not sure if that's a red herring or a straw man. I was trying to figure out which fallacy of logic that was um, to, yeah. to point out the areas where something is not false and say, well, so clearly this generalization that I'm about to make. Maybe it's a hasty generalization. is true, yeah. right? And I, I think Cohen did a nice job with And with then that. the other thing he, he goes on to say is the article shows that the systematic umbrella reviews leave significant room for interpretation, which I think is important for kind of the, the lay person who says, well, it's got to be valid because, you know, it's a strong study design. Yeah, um, just a, a big problem there. So he says, what you leave out can be just as important as what you put in. The authors did not include a meta-analysis published in the same journal, mind you, Molecular Psychiatry in 2021, the abstract which concluded, and so it's impossible for their search terms to have not brought this up because they were searching for depression and then serotonin in the abstract title in that journal. And so the, the uh, article concluded, our integrated results revealed that metabolic changes in the peripheral blood were associated with MDD, particularly decreased L-tryptophan. I, I, no, I think, I think you can point to a lot of studies that didn't take us down a serotonin pathway, but it seems like they didn't look for the studies that might help you say that there's some role of serotonin. Yeah. And, and again, it's to say it's a chemical imbalance, I, I think Cohen is saying very clearly, hey, there's, they, they did a nice job summarizing where we haven't found that association, but here's some places that they didn't talk about, right? And, and uh, I think that's very well said. I, I was impressed with the way he responded to it, especially since I felt like he was probably not accurately quoted by her referencing. And he's very gracious in the introduction, and it seems like they focused mostly on that portion and discarded the rest. I, yeah, like I said, Cohen really just knocked my socks off. It, it made me want to go read more by, by this guy because I think he's very thoughtful. Um, I want to go now a step further. Um, the theory then put, um, the, the, the Moncrief article also cited somebody named Reed. There was an article where they looked at some authors in Australia, mm -hmm. or, so, or primary care physicians in Australia. So this was done just before the pandemic hit, and by the time the pandemic hit, they had 66 responses. And so what they said was, and um, clearly, uh, Physicians believe that this is a, a chemical imbalance, which there seems to be something off with the chemicals, maybe. 
There seems to be something off with the biology maybe that changes. There's some biological role. And, and they start from the position that having any, any belief that there's biology involved in this is probably wrong, right? So, so they, they cite this author, Reed. And, and the idea is that because there's this research on serotonin and because drug companies sold this as a chemical imbalance, it looks like maybe Prozac did have some sales pitches that involved chemical imbalance, right? Um, then, as a result, um, physician attitudes are changing. And what's interesting is I went and I read the Reed article, or at least the part that speaks to physician attitudes and, and considerations, and over the, the uh, 15 years, roughly, that they looked at these attitudes, they looked at physician attitudes, they gave case scenarios, they looked at physician attitudes in terms of, um, do you see this as a biological or a psychological or a, you know, an events-related um, kind of process? And it was very interesting because between the two periods of assessment, or be, there were actually three, they had never looked at chemical imbalances causing it. The only time they looked was one time, so they couldn't know that there was a change in physician attitudes about this. Um, but what was interesting was that over the 15 years, what they've found is that there is less reliance on the idea that you're just a weak person if you're depressed, right? So, so it seems that the chemical imbalance issue may be taking away from the you're just a weak person idea, which seems helpful overall, yeah. right? Maybe. Um, but what's also interesting is the data doesn't really support the way they cited the article in this case either, in my mind. Because in, um, like, uh, in 1995, 41% of the people thought an allergy might be responsible for depression. It was only 28% in 2011. In other words, biological causes less important in causing depression. Day-to-day -day problems, 94% in 1995, 97% in 2011. Death of a friend might cause depression. Only 90% of the people believed that in, uh, 2000, or in 1995. 97% believed that in 2011. And, and I can go on and on. Trauma, same thing, increased over the same period. In other words, the idea that physicians are seeing this as more of a biological problem as opposed to a problem associated with the day-to-day -day events that happen around us and can maybe trigger us into depression doesn't seem to be held up by the article they cited. Yeah. I, I had problems with that, too. Um, so if you don't mind, yeah, uh, if I jump just in. build on that. So from their paper in the discussion section, they say the chemical imbalance theory of depression is still put forward by professionals, and the serotonin theory in particular has formed the basis of considerable research effort over the last few decades. Mm -hmm. So I pulled up the source for which they were using to found that point on. Pilkington. And read both of those. Yeah, so it was like a, a sample size of 66 UK physicians. Oh, so I said Australian physicians. Uh, it was UK physicians, yeah. by mistake. So I, I looked, and it was there's 36,752 NHS qualified general physicians in the UK. So their sample size, if they were going to adequately sample them, would be something on the line of 269 physicians if they were trying to get a 90% confidence interval. But, um, but again, even, so I, I actually said Australian, but this is the same article um, I looked at. All the data showed that they're seeing it more of a biopsychosocial problem than they are biological problem. Well, they, and, the, and the other issue with that, too, is they weren't asked, do you believe the serotonin theory of depression? 
they were asked the question, what do you think are the relative contributions of biogenetic causes, chemical imbalance, genetic predisposition versus social causes, stressful traumatic events, loss for depression? So it's not even the same question. It, no, well, well, chemical imbalance came up only in 2011 in that study, but um, between 95 and 2011, 49% of the people thought there was an inherited basis for it, and by 2011, 65% of the people thought there was an inherited basis. Because I, I read it as percent yeah. of the physicians who thought that was contributory. And, and so, interestingly enough, it seems that physicians are seeing the biopsychosocial model as contributory to depression more in 2011 than they did in 1995. And... I guess for me, it just strikes of a loaded question because if you're asking someone, it would be fair to say if they represented that as even, do you feel like social determinants play a bigger role? That doesn't say that the biological basis has no role, but the way that they framed the answer to the questions is that it is essentially put forward as being only a chemical imbalance theory, dismissing yeah. any social... And clearly the physicians feel like it's much more than that if you look at the whole paper. Again, I think they cited it incorrectly more than... Yeah. I, I have awareness of the limitations of the paper, but I think it was... I, I think the data is interpreted in a really odd way by, by Moncrief and her group. Which strikes me because the extent that they went to to acquire all these different meta-analyses and systematic reviews and then to... Um, use a system to essentially see, you know, they had the AMSTAR rating for all the meta-analyses to see how strong they were getting a result. To take that one study in isolation and misrepresent it in such a way strikes to me more of a less negligent approach and then maybe in an intentional directed approach. Well, I think that's the third study I've pointed out that said I don't think that the way they're citing the study is, is really faithful to the way the study or the paper that they looked at was. Now, clearly, if you look at, I think it's the Pilkington one, or it might be the Reed one, one of the two, clearly these authors are um, of the opinion that psychotherapies would, would, you know, anytime you use medication, you're probably making mistakes like psychotherapy should be better. And I don't remember if it was the Reed article or the Pilkington. But in any case, again, I don't think the Pilkington article really... I don't think it's the, the way they interpret it. I have heartburn with. It. Yeah, and then the next one bothers me too. So, so we talked about this this end summary, right? Their their conclusionary statements. The first was the theories put forward by professionals. I, I don't think the Reed article is really solid on saying that either. It's the basis of considerable research. Definitely true. The public believes that depression is caused by serotonin and chemical abnormalities. Uh, Somewhat, right? Um, but the article they they included, at least the Pilkington one, you know, speaks to the physicians and the way that they put it in. Uh, four. This is the part where it gets interesting. The use of the um, chemical imbalance approach may be harmful. Is their next statement? And they have a couple of sources that are cited that are fascinating. One is the Kemp article, and I couldn't get my hands on it. But the Kemp article says that what they did is they gave. Uh, patients um, an ostensibly true biological test that said you have depression because we've proven it with this test. And then they checked attitudes about those patients, right? And it appears that if you tell somebody that they have a biological cause for their depression, that it might be harder for them to overcome that. Like they, they might feel like it's harder to treat. 
no outcomes associated with that. There's no evidence that that's true. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea is that if you're working with somebody in psychotherapy, being told that there's biological aspects to this might make it harder to perform psychotherapy. But there's no evidence that it gets in the way of a biological treatment like uh, an SSRI or an MAOI, right? Um, And there isn't evidence that 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 we have yet that suggests that it actually is harder to get somebody well, just kind of this, hey, maybe it does. Yeah. And then the second article that they had on this, I thought, again, I have a little bit of heartburn about this. The Leibowitz article, which is the 65th reference in this, says, yeah, these attitudes are definitely there. However, if we tell somebody that there seem to be biological underpinnings to depression, and then we say, and the brain is very malleable and modelable, and you can treat that, they have better outcomes than people who aren't told that there might be biological underpinnings of this. And yet they quote it as, you may be potentially harming people by telling people that there is a biological aspect to depression. I thought that was, that bothered me too. Yeah. Um, and then the, the fifth subpoint is that potentially people will continue taking medications if they think it's a biological illness. Well, maybe. But they also felt to talk about how educating physicians, I think this is also information that you would see on your shelf exam, how long do you continue treatment of somebody who's had a major depressive episode? After the first episode, the evidence is either six months or a year, depending on what you read. Uh, If there have been multiple episodes, then maybe for the foreseeable future under consultation with your your provider, right? And so um, instead of saying, hey, we... Maybe we should talk about the standard of care in evidence-based medicine. It's people would be on antidepressants to treat their depression for you know, longer periods of time than may be necessary. And I don't know that that's a valid or invalid criticism. It may be true, but I didn't think there was a lot of data behind this. There was um, an article, again, that they cited. This was the 67th reference. And um, interestingly enough, that article was not really the same conclusion. I thought that the Moncrief group took from it. They said barriers and facilitations are complex um, and that the key part of this revolves around the physician interaction with the patient. Not that it's a biological issue that's sticking in the patient's mind, but rather that it's what the physician recommends that sticks in the patient's mind and whether they say stay on it or not, not whether it's biological or not. So again, I thought that uh, I thought it was a stretch the way that they cited this article. So I, I, the articles I looked up over and over and over, I, I felt like, I, I don't feel like this story is being told accurately. What about you? You have thoughts about the conclusion, too. I want to hear yours. Well, um, to me, it kind of strikes of them trying to uh, paint an issue as being more black and white, like as though you would discontinue an SSRI that a patient, let's say a patient's responding to it, and then the discussion comes about uh, at what point do we discontinue this? And I think that's an example of shared decision-making between a physician and their patient. And it's one of those situations where it doesn't fit nicely into an algorithm where we say, well, as the are assessing things for the DSM criteria and how many of these things were omitted, and then you're just deciding, okay, we're discontinuing it at this point. Um, it feels like they. It feels like the way they want to go about this is to make sure that patients have the opportunity for psychotherapy 
But it feels like the way they're going about it is by trying to say patients shouldn't have the opportunity to consider antidepressant medication. Yeah, by never consider, like considering that avenue, it solves that problem for them so that they don't ever have to have that discussion, I guess. is. Um, and the question I would bring about is, since I don't think any of the people on the other side of the fence are advocating against psychotherapy, but if that is the only thing that you have in, in terms of your tool belt, how do you get patients with depression that's so severe they can't even talk to you or get out of bed to engage in psychotherapy? Um, because that would be an interesting problem I'd like to have solved. I, I shared with you a chat GPT that I threw into the, uh, into the uh, artificial intelligence matrix, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very fascinating because even, even the chat GPT, so I think I put in the prompt, um, why are antidepressants better than psychotherapy in the, setting, in the setting of severe major depressive disorder? And e- even though I, I'm fully aware that there's, I, I'm not aware of any data that says psychotherapy works in severe depression. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not aware of it, I think. NIMH studies have shown that medications are really your own, only pathway. Whether that's changed since those studies have come out, certainly possible. Those are fairly old studies looking at uh, TCAs, if I recall correctly. Um, but, but even ChatGPT had a tough time saying, gosh, it just doesn't work for severe depression, even though I hinted at it two or three times, and then still said essentially something that I liked a lot, which was, these are decisions between a primary care provider or a physician, really, and the patient, and it's a shared decision. I thought that was actually pretty good. At least that's what I took from it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I, I want to step away from my criticism. So my biggest criticism is I don't think this story is internally coherent. I think that there are a number of uh, logic, logical fallacies that are involved in this uh, because some area doesn't mean this, doesn't mean you that the whole area where there is some data can be ignored, right? And I think you've alluded to that. Um, I think that the way they went about talking about why we shouldn't think about biological, uh, a chemical imbalance is more an indictment of the biology of, of depression than it is about the phrase chemical biology. If they had simply stuck to this phrase might not be helpful, and as we talk about more complex issues, that would be helpful. Or if they wanted to say, because this was wrong, we're worried that it might lead to people um, rejecting psychotherapy. Um, I think there are legitimate pathways to explore and that, that that exploration would be helpful. I don't think they did that. I think this was a don't take medications because it cuts into our psychotherapy approach. And maybe I'm being um, unkind in that assessment. So I'm curious what criticisms of the paper you saw now. Um, so we had mentioned Dr. Cohen's criticism. Other criticisms, there was a uh, Professor Nudson, he's a professor of neurobiology and a chair at neurology and neurobiology research unit at Copenhagen. And his statement was, the authors justify the need for such a review by saying that it is a public misconception that depression is caused by low brain serotonin. The main misconception is, however, that depression is a single disease with a single biochemical deficit. Today it is largely accepted that depression is heterogeneous disorder with multiple uh, or potentially multiple underlying causes. The review aims to uncover existing evidence of a serotonergic deficit. The studies included in the review use methodologies that only generate proxies for the real question, 
which is if synaptic 5-HT concentration and release are altered in subsets of patients with major depression. Um, and one of the things that they had cited was like the difficulty of obtaining 5-HII, which is or 5-HIAA, which is the primary metabolite. 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid, if I remember uh -huh. correctly. So that it goes, it becomes 5-HIA uh, in the liver, and then undergoes um, metabolic alteration so that it's cleared by the kidneys renally, and I, mean, I think that doesn't deliver the information that it needs to because you need to measure the concentrations in the cerebral spinal fluid to determine what type of concentrations we're getting centrally um, and you know obviously limitations to gathering CSF or you have to have somebody undergo a lumbar puncture which yeah, is myriad. invasive and <laughs> <laughs> the risks you know relative to the benefits in in, in a research setting as well so um, it seems like kind of a stretch to use that as one of their markers. Another um, researcher, Dr. Michael Bloomfield, who is a consultant psychiatrist in the UK, said the hypothesis that depression was caused by a chemical imbalance in serotonin was a really important step in the middle of the 20th century. That almost reads like a dig to me, but I could just be projecting. Uh, <laughs> since then, there's a huge amount of research which tells us that the brain's serotonin system plays very important roles in how our brains process different emotions. The findings from this umbrella review are really unsurprising. Depression has lots of different symptoms, and I don't think I've met any serious scientist or psychiatrist who think that all causes of depression are caused by a single chemical imbalance in serotonin. What remains possible is that for some people with certain types of depression, that changes in the serotonin system may be contributing to their symptoms. The problem with this review is that it isn't able to answer that question because it has lumped together depression as if it was a single disorder, which from a biological perspective does not make any sense. And it's also important to note that when they were putting their methods together that they omitted any type of depression that had any comorbid association. So we know um, that neurocognitive disorders have increased rates of depression like Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease, um, that depression can occur in a postpartum state. They omitted any of those instances as well. Um, so it's almost like they're trying to say, if you have major depressive disorder, it's just one thing. Um, and then so he goes on to say, many of us know that taking paracetamol can be helpful for headaches, and I don't think anyone believes that headaches are caused by not enough paracetamol in the brain. The same logic applies to depression and medicines used to treat depression. Um, so this is Moncrief's response to that. First of all, the analogy is misleading because we know that paracetamol works by um, <laughs> targeting mechanisms, mechanisms that produce pain. So I labeled that as their point uh, one. And it does not produce an alteration in normal emotions and mental experience. I labeled that point two. <laughs> Seems on face incorrect. Yeah. And then with antidepressants, we do not have evidence that they target the underlying biological basis of depressive symptoms and they do produce mental and emotional changes which can account for their effects. So that was point three. So this is kind of my response to Moncrief since we don't have a further dialogue. But one, um, paracetamol doesn't target, it, target mechanisms that produce pain. Um, I know that sometimes there's a contrast that's uh, levied with NSAIDs and acetaminophen saying that there's different mechanisms of action because of the cyclooxygenase pathway and that NSAIDs tend to be further up and inhibiting the cyclooxygenase pathway. Um, we know now, though, that paracetamol, at least, 
has effects in the periaqueductal gray, which is a region of the CNS. So it's inhibiting pain centrally. Um, and not a pain-causing mechanism. Yes. So they, they were wrong in their assertion, not to say that that refutes their paper, but they essentially tried to make a red herring out of that person's argument by saying they're saying this thing, which was not what they're saying. Um, so they kind of deflect that argument rather than addressing the analogy. Yeah, I think they um, just are inaccurate in the way they address it, too. Because I, I think it's very clear that pain medications affect your cognitive perception of pain. Yeah. Um, or in, the pain, in or the pain, processing. In, in really, in some sense, pain is uh, the experience that your consciousness brings to uh, somatosensory information in the body, which is by default sort of a <laughs> neurological, neurological process. process. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I, I just think this is a... a so it starts to get into a, a degree of semantics where it almost feels like that's... Are they more concerned about the semantics or... Which just seems wrong. Uh, yeah. It just seems wrong, too. I mean, it just doesn't seem accurate how they're responding. So I, I kind of further went on to say also that, you know, acetaminophen has a mechanism, M404, which um, is able to enter into the CNS and has some effect on signaling cascades, periaqueductal grays, modulation of pain. Because they said that um, at one point, the mechanism of action for antidepressants must either be one placebo or two, the numbing of emotions, which I thought was interesting because um, they say that it has mental type effects, but if something is, is able to change pain modulation, it could potentially have an emotional effect by virtue of that change in pain. Yeah. And I don't think that they would advocate eliminating a patient's pain. Yeah. I, I, I think these go on and on and on. And I, I think you found some of these from Matt in America where they've responded mm -hmm. to some of the criticisms, I think. And I think anybody that reads through these can see that um, I, I think it's difficult to find a lot of validity in the way they've responded to these. I think there are a lot of holes in the paper. I think um, I think we can probably stop here mm -hmm. unless there's anything you really feel like needs to be added to the criticism of the paper. So uh, there was one thing that they said. So just kind of in relation to the effect or numbing. Um, I guess I would just kind of reiterate some of the facts that we had kind of put forward and some of the treatments that we have now. So alterations of BDNF levels and neuronal plasticity, I think, are um, well evident at this point. And yet they are essentially saying that the serotonin system, um, you know, it's not the, the sole etiology of depression but they didn't formulate their argument that way. Um, what they said is there's no biochemical basis for depression, and then use serotonin concentration as a proxy. Yeah, seems like a hasty generalization, doesn't it? I, I um, thought it was interesting, because one of the first things I did was think, well, does anybody make the case that um, depression is not biological still, right? Because I, I, mean, I, th I, I kind of think of it more of a... Like a two-hit theory kind of thing, I think, makes some sort of sense to me, whether that's accurate or not. Sort of like uh, 
somebody that has the uh, what's the gene in the eye that excises uh, radiation? Retinoblastoma. Ret retinoblastoma gene, right? You have the RB uh, wild type, and then the RB normal. Was it the way around? So if you have only one functional retinoblastoma gene and you have a genetic modification later, um, then like a mutation, then you are susceptible to a variety of different types of right. cancer. But you still have to have sunlight, and then you have to have the genetic predisposition, right? Because it's sunlight or light that's causing the um, genetic mutation in the DNA. Yeah, I mean, it could be anything that induces uh, the RB gene to become non-transcribing. Non yeah, um, but or, I think UV light is one thing that they use to describe damage the process. The DNA. And, and I think it's very similar, right? I, I think to say that uh, patients don't ha like, like, like I was thinking, there there has to be some sort of biological. Like, like, do people really believe that there's no biological predisposition to this? And maybe, maybe there isn't for some depression. Yeah. I don't know, but to say that there's no biological part of this seems really strange, considering. I, I mean, I, the first thing I did is went and looked at twin studies and. There's a tremendous amount of heritability of depression, right? If there's if there's no heritability, it makes it difficult to say that there is uh, a genetic or that there's a biological basis. But when the heritability is somewhere around 65 to 70 percent, based on twin studies, it makes it hard to say there's no biological basis to depression. And I think that was the first place I went to, and I I really struggled with the article after I. I read that, and I had never read anything along heritability of depression before. Yeah, I mean, I read about it with schizophrenia. That's always on the shelf exam, forty to sixty percent <laughs> concordance, right? Yeah, but heritability of depression, I, I had never thought about before. So I, I I wrapped everything up in kind of conclusions. Uh, I had the issues that I found personally, um, points of agreement, and then questions that, for whatever reason, that's where I was headed answered. next. Um, so the, the issues that I found personally is they omitted at least one example of a meta-analysis which didn't support their conclusions, which would have been discovered in their search terms. Uh, big question mark there. The majority, if not all the authors, have an interest in critical psychiatry. Um, and I, I think have books that are critical of medication, so there's, there's a financial interest in this. For them. Yeah, and, and one of their criticisms was... Uh, individuals who are critiquing this paper have associations with the pharmaceutical industry, but all of the criticisms that we had sort of um, levied in this discussion, none of those authors had any conflicts of interest to declare or any association we could discover with any other existing pharmaceutical industry. So I'd be interested to know which specific authors that responded um, have those associations. Because I think that would be more helpful. Whereas yeah. we could say for sure the lead author has financial incentives for selling more books. Yeah. Um, also, they uh, actually, we, we just touched on that point. Which one? Uh, the <laughs> what we just said. Okay. Uh, SSRIs also are a class of medications, and like all medications, um, you know, they get labeled as an antidepressant. But the only pure SSRI that exists is Lexapro or escitalopram. So by saying something's an SSRI is it's helpful to a degree because it gives you an idea of the mechanism of action but alleged mechanism of action well yeah <laughs> uh, most of our SSRIs have other effects that aren't SSRIs and we of course have classes called SNRIs which we have a very specific 
mechanism of action that we say differentiates those, but it gets a little bit more complicated when we consider the heterogeneity of serotonin receptors. And I think they're trying to once again take something that's three-dimensional and compress it into a 2D plane by saying, you know, um, you would never deprive a, a diabetic patient of their insulin, which even and then has certain use cases of when you would use insulin and not. And we wouldn't say that all cases of diabetes are insulin deficiency. It's, no. It simplifies the disease pathology, and you certainly wouldn't replace every diabetic patient's insulin. And yet that was kind of the analogy they're trying to paint. And then when they had critiques, they said, well, we are being strawmanned. So in terms of points of agreement, um, I would say medication is not the only strategy, nor likely should it be, which I feel like maybe we don't agree because they wouldn't agree with medication, but I would certainly agree that psychotherapy has its validity. And I don't think I know anybody who's stated don't use psychotherapy. If anything, I'd struggle to find a psycho or a uh, any pathology in the field of psychiatry that doesn't have an indication for some type of therapeutic modality. Um, yeah. Where we only treat it medically, I can't think of one. I think we try very hard to have a biopsychosocial approach. Um, and then, of course, all medications have side effects. So prescribing them is a cost-benefit analysis in every case, which involves a discussion with your patients. And this includes things that aren't prescription medications. So one analogy that I came up with, um, since they're fond of those, was if you take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen every day, since it doesn't exert CNS effects, for six months daily versus 10 milligrams of Lexapro, uh, which of these patients would exhibit organ damage in this case? And uh, if we were to do epidemiologic studies, so I looked up the data for how many people enter the ED with uh, misuse of insulin, and it's something like uh, there was 100,000 cases of emergent insulin toxicity in patients over a five-year course. And I very struggled to find any incidents where someone had overdosed on like an SSRI and their risk of toxic overdose. Just a, well, that's, I think that's why SSRIs moved to family practice as opposed to TCAs, where we would yeah. have seen that in the distant past. Or MAOIs, right? Or like MAOIs, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. So some of the questions I have, could enteric pathologies account for noise in the studies where they're using 5-HIAA as a proxy? Um, you know, it's inconceivable that the, the breakdown's occurring somewhere else and that it's mudding some of the things that we're not controlling for. And if serotonin's the crux of depression, then wouldn't there be a sort of like a period of greatest efficacy at the initial onset of treatment? And it's something that we know somebody has to be treated for at least four weeks before we consider that to be an adequate period. I think sometimes Lexapro can be as effective as um, some antidepressants at two weeks, but that's the, the one shelf of those exam. Where you, like, the you shelf exam is four to six weeks, I believe. So yeah. no, four to six weeks <laughs> before you start making changes on your SSRI or to determine whether it is helpful or not helpful. Yeah, and. I was able to find studies where somebody was on an SSRI and they saw changes on the response in their amygdala when they're seeing um, very fearful imagery. So they kind of measure on an fMRI study, like how fearful someone interprets uh, human faces. And then they had them on an SSRI and it modulated the experience after even one week. So we know that changes are occurring, but it's... That, art, that article was interesting. 
Yeah, I, I looked at that one too. Yeah. So. What, what, what was it? Because that was cited in the study too, right? Um, I don't think they cited it specifically, but I thought they did. Or was it one I threw in? Maybe it was one that I threw in. Um, I then we must have both found it because yeah, because that was interesting. And and um, anyway, maybe another time for that study. I was yeah. fascinated by that though. Maybe you could make a podcast about that. Just one paper. <laughs> that would be really interesting. Um, so other answered questions I have: If there is no um, if there's no biological basis, then I would like them to explain the atrophy of the hippocampus, hypertrophy in the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with uh, reward-like behavior. Um, I think they would just reverse causality to answer that, though, without data behind that. Yeah. They would say the depression causes it, not that it causes the depression. But it, it, it just seems like a very... Uh, I, I think what we're saying is there's biology involved in this, and I think they would like to say there's no biology in it. It's just the way you see the world. I, th- I, I Again, hasty generalization on my part now. I'm, I'm guilty of the things I'm accusing of. Which I guess physiology happens in a vacuum. So. No, but I think, I think they would say that the physiology could be a response to the depression rather than vice versa, I think would be the way they would answer. So then if you fix it through therapy, then the... Right. Which is what we would still expect. You know, if someone's undergoing therapy, I think you would see these changes. These things changes, yeah. So I think they would say they're a biomarker, not necessarily the cause. But I don't know. I'd be interested to hear it. Um, And then, of course, the amygdala, which we had mentioned. And then how do they account for alterations in BDNF and suicidality? And also we see changes in even something like the HPA axis where... The normal function of the HPA axis is for cortisol to decrease, uh, you know, release later down the line um, to inhibit CRH signaling from the pituitary. We see this sort of stress dysregulation in, uh, in major depression disorder. But I guess um, we could kind of encapsulate all of those arguments with the same thing that you had just said. Yeah, I think and so. they would approach it that same way. Right, they would flip it. Um, Causality. Yeah. And, and I don't know the answer to that, right? I think it's an interesting question. Um, but there's something biologically where, where some people can have the exact same experience and they don't end up having uh, hippocampal atrophy at any level, right? And, or any of the other pathways that seem to fade. So the question is, if there is a biology, where is it? And why does it manifest as changes in the brain this way when depression happens? I think would be the way I would wonder about it. Yeah, it... At the very least, you would also wonder if individuals that they aren't having success with, then is that because of the therapist or is it because of the patient? Is, are there biological differences in that patient or is the therapist is not the therapist communicating the with problem, the right modality? Yeah. Interesting question. Other criticisms you have? We've got, been going almost no. <laughs> uh, almost an hour and a half uh, here, we, so we better start closing it down. We have this tendency. Yeah, you've been trying to shut me down for a while now. Yeah, um, any other criticisms? So, no, because if I do, it will just, this will uh, be like my other podcast, which is two <laughs> hours. So. And one of the most listened to podcasts uh, that we put out as a, as a group of students. And me. Uh, Matt, I want to hear your kind of final take home on this, your thoughts. And then uh, I'm going to, Dave, I'll give my, some of my wrap-ups, and then I'll give you a last word and to close it out. Okay? Matt? Um, I think it was interesting uh, hearing the conversation, listening uh, to 
you know, your critiques about the article. I think something that's interesting is important to know is what Dave brought up uh, is there are multiple ways that we're able to treat a patient. I think even when we are studying for our shelf exams and the, the data that we have to do a very structured step-by-step -step, um, approach to things, often I find that the field of psychiatry is, is a little bit more of an open book. Like there's a lot of things that you can do. There's a lot of things that you can try. And I think what you hit on is also the physician-patient relationship, being able to work out what's best for the patient, keeping it patient-focused, understanding uh, what they would like, what we can do to best help them so that ultimately we can treat their depression, they can continue on with a more happy life. Uh, that was one of my takeaways, darn it. All right, so um, there was actually a really interesting article written in Slate, and I, I don't... I don't tend to go to Slate for my best advice about anything medical. Maybe I should. Haven't gone there a lot in the past. But there was a phenomenal article written by somebody who called themselves a philosopher. And she said, essentially, um, th this article isn't great. And I was like, well, what? And, and this is somebody who says in the article, I've had depression and chosen not to treat the depression with medication. Um, and one of my very good friends has chosen to treat her depression, which is quite similar with medication. We've both made it to the same place. We're both very happy. But she said that the, the article, uh, she had a couple of criticisms of the article and said, hey, um, it might be that a lot of people who have been on medication might stop suddenly because uh, of this article, because they've been told, and this thing is out here, right, that, that this is a chemical imbalance, this, this phrase is out there. Um, and now they're questioning whether they need antidepressants because of the chemical imbalance theory being wrong. Well, first of all, I don't think the, quote, serotonin hypothesis, end quote, is completely resolved in terms of how serotonin works in the brain to um, regulate mood, right? Why is it the SSRIs seem to be effective, and the data does show that, in treating at least some people who have depression, right? Our NNTs are about five, which isn't the worst NNT in the world, not the best, not the worst. So, so I thought that I thought that uh, if you want to go for a pop psych view on this, actually go to Slate, Google, uh, Google this issue, look for the Slate article, and I think it's incredibly well written because how it ended was essentially the patient should have that ability to jump in and make that decision. And here's two different pathways that both led us to the place we were happy. I love that article. I think my second take home was. Uh, something that I've known in the past, and that is that going and looking at the articles that are referenced is valuable. The articles that I looked at that were referenced in this, uh, in this topic led me down some very fascinating pathways that I appreciated a great deal. Does it help my patients to say this is a biological illness? Maybe not. Does it help my patients to say this is a biological illness and we can change the biology with psychotherapy or medications or perhaps better yet, both? at least in, in uh, mild and moderate depression. Um, I was left understanding a great deal more about the way that people view depression and how physician views don't seem to fit with how I see depression. I'm not sure that that's my problem or uh, an issue of uh, maybe primary care physicians having less time in the specialty and less time reading about uh, depression the way I read about it. Um, so, so certainly something for me to consider. I guess at the end of the day, the other thing that's interesting, and I don't know what to make of this, is that the author in the Slate magazine said maybe having this article hurt people. 
um, because of the willingness to stop medications. I don't know the answer to that. I think that's as asserted as the idea that talking about depression having biological components to it is harmful to patients. I think any time you're less accurate, that's bad. I do think that one of the great stories here is the evolution of what our understanding is. Um, all of the authors that I think we read through were very careful to say this is the cause of depression when we looked at the original articles on like the catecholamine uh, hypothesis, so to speak. Um, and I think even uh, Dr. Cohen, who is incredibly measured, right, I, I'm just very impressed with this. I think it, it I, I think that um, my takeaway is that these are theories, and I think it's reasonable to poke holes in those. Um, absolutely, it's the way the discussion goes. We should have a good, robust debate. I, I think what's interesting is that the things, many of the things they cited, the debate's over on those, right? Most people agree. And yet they left out a lot of parts of the debate on the overall role of serotonin, what that might mean. I don't think there's much debate about the idea that serotonin causes or serotonin de uh, deficiency causes depression, but I think there's a role on how much it causes, and I think there's a great debate on how we talk about depression. So I have a, a lot of take-homes from it, and hopefully I'm a better physician having read this article and looked at depression from somebody who has a viewpoint that from their lived experiences is very different than mine, and whatever I can take from that, I'll try to take. Yeah. Dave, you're, you're, you're ball now. Um, so I kind of had two different takeaways. One is kind of situated more towards the research side of things. I feel like they could have asked a much more helpful and better question, which would be serotonin's relative contribution to this picture. Um, I think for them to not know the medications that we're utilizing as practicing psychiatrists, um, they might be living under a rock. Uh, because uh, obviously it's not the only tool in the arsenal anymore. As, as we've talked on prior podcasts now, we have things like even uh, ketamine, um, things in MDA uh, antagonists where we've got, um, we, we had just talked about one treatment that was a combined SSRI and, and MDA antagonist and um, utilizing that for treatment resistant depression. So there's clearly a lot more at work. RTMS. Um, yeah, and TMS protocols, as those have been changing, have been effective in treatment-resistant depression. And the new SAINT modulation. Uh, so many different ways of tackling depression. Which yeah. all kind of um, allow us to evolve the initial hypotheses that are put forward. And that is just kind of a, a precedent set by science, where we take something, and as our information changes, we update the picture and our understanding of that picture um, and that's not a, a deficit, that's the strength of, I think, the scientific method is utilizing that to our advantage to better help patients and not, um, I guess, flailing ourselves for not having the answer to begin with because... <laughs> <laughs> These are tough to sort out, yeah. yeah. I want to interject one very quick thing. Mm -hmm. I, th I think it's interesting because there were a number of times that I caught myself saying, well, wait a minute, you can't disprove that serotonin is involved Really, all you've proven is that these ways it isn't it isn't yet verified, right? And and that gets into falsifiability and verifiability hypotheses. And I think um, it's it's more accurate to say we've verified that some of these pathways don't seem to be the way that SSRIs work in treatment of depression. And now we're trying to either falsify or verify um, some of the other pathways, right? Um, and, and I think it's an interesting way of proving things and and. The way they set it up is very interesting because it, it, 
it often puts us in the area of a less rigorous scientific method to say, but wait a minute, there's more going on that we're studying. And I just thought that was an interesting takeaway for me too. Yeah. Jump in though. Jump uh, back in and I apologize for inter uh, interrupting. Uh, I'm trying to think now. <laughs> uh, of your second, you were on your first one. And oh, then, well, I guess I, I could talk about my, my clinical takeaways, but I was just thinking if there's anything I would add to, add to that. Um, yeah, I think the falsifiability is there are aliens that land in my backyard every night. Well, let's put out flashlights and set up and watch. Well, we didn't see them. Well, you, we haven't disproven it yet because aliens are invisible. They have a cloaking mm -hmm. device, right? Well, we haven't falsified. It, it, verifying something, I think I like that standard a little more. And, and in some ways, talking about this, we, we get caught between what we haven't, haven't, haven't verified. And it's easy to talk about that in terms of you haven't falsified it yet. Yeah. And so, so that's kind of the idea that I was reaching for there. And I don't know if that made sense no, better I, the it, second time. Yeah, I think the second time. Yeah, I'm, uh, better, I'm it sure it could did. be that I've just depleted uh, Speaking of neurotransmitters. <laughs> <laughs> my guess is All you, worked, you no. worked eight hours before <laughs> this, too. It's probably my guess. Well, I, I've definitely been uh, burning the midnight oil. Yeah. So if uh, nothing else, that's why some of my arguments maybe weren't coherent. Um, Second takeaway. In, in terms of, yeah. I guess, if I could expound on that, it's one of those things where there's always going to be things that we don't know. And the more we learn is probably contributes to just how vast a picture that this truly is. And there's probably just as much that we don't know, if not more, currently. And we may look back in several hundreds of years and say, well, how barbaric was it that they were utilizing <laughs> those treatments? Um, I, I hope we say that in five years. But we're not bloodletting and using leeches. So uh, perhaps that's a step forward. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of uh, how I, I kind of look at this clinically, I think as um, you're talking with your patients that any decision that you make about their health is always a shared discussion where you're informing them of the, the benefits and the potential costs. I think um, a lot of patients are distressed by the fact that they could become emotionally, emotionally numbed and that could be a potential side effect. And there's things like that that can occur that um, have a big consequence for them that they maybe didn't predict as much was as troubling for them as maybe depression is. And so having a, a discourse about that is important, but also um, identifying cases where an individual is potentially going to hurt, hurt themselves. You know, you can't change when someone commits suicide. That's always a potential outcome associated with this. And I think that it's important to not overlook uh, cases where somebody is is at that point and you're always looking you know are is someone really at risk of hurting themselves or hurting others um, this isn't just as simple as being you're going to have some GI side effects as a result of that it could be something you know way more permanent than that so um, that's something I feel like they didn't even mention suicide as a, a potential risk of, of major depression and um, or of the treatments yeah and, and just how severe major depression can be for individuals and yeah. also kind of distinguishing this is something we had talked about but clinical depression and just saying you know I feel depressed can mean very different things um, and in saying I feel depressed or I felt depressed for the past week may not mean that you're having major depressive disorder um, it you know there can be all kinds of stressors people are experiencing, and it's important to 
um, assess your patient. I know, especially in family practice settings, it can be difficult when you're working with 15-minute windows and you're trying to figure out what's really going on with someone. If uh, what is their most important issue is you're triaging things, is it their blood pressure or is it the fact that they just went through a divorce and lost their father or mother and all those things are happening. You kind of have to make a very profound and significant decision in such a short period of time. And I think it's difficult to, when you have the options of psychotherapy, how do I bridge a patient to psychotherapy from this point? Or I could give them a prescription that might also help them faster. Um, I think we would all say that using both tends to produce the most efficacious outcomes for people. And uh, the data supports that. We're used in conjunction we see the biggest magnitude of difference. But it's also one of those things where everybody's scenario is going to be different. The way in physicians interfacing with patients is going to be different in that environment and how much time they're able to spend with their patients. Um, so I think having a blanket treatment is not appropriate, and that's why medicine is practiced the way uh, it's practiced to some degrees because every case has to be considered through a critical lens um, and, and really doing what you believe is best for the patient that you have in front of you. Um, so that would be, I guess, my take home from this is uh, considering all those things for every patient that you have in front of you. And um, yeah, I don't know if there's any, I think the glutamate's gone. <laughs> then, on that note, on that note, Batman, oh wait, team out. Team out. Team out. <laughs>